Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, that's the day of the week, where we read back a few of the messages that you've sent in over the past cycle or two, and we got a good mailbag for you today. That's right. Um, you know, before we get going, though, a quick call out to our producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. A couple of things. First of all, he wanted us to, uh, to, to remind every, to, to tell everybody, not remind, to, to tell everyone that he has been enjoying the, um, the hot dog plus kimchi combo, uh, which was uh, recommended in the previous listener mail by Jim from New Jersey. How could you go wrong? I mean, it's like, it, I, I know it's perfect without even tasting it. Yeah, it's a, a match made in heaven. Uh, and then second, secondly, uh, as I think we've, we've mentioned this before, but uh, Seth Nicholas Johnson has his own uh, podcast, Rusty Needles Record Club, which you can find wherever you get your podcast. And he had an episode come out on Friday uh, with a very special guest. Who's that special guest, Joe? Oh, it's me. I, I was on Seth's podcast last Friday. We talked about So if you haven't heard it, uh, uh, Seth's uh, podcast is, is, again, it's called Rusty Needles Record Club. And it's sort of like a book club, but for albums, you know, but for music. And so uh, it, it's very low key. It's a lot of fun. And the album I picked for Seth's show was the Batman Forever soundtrack from the 1990s. I mean, <laughs> oh, man. what is else this would one it be? With, uh, with Seal's Kiss from a Rose on it? Oh, you know it is. It's got oh, Seal... Man. It's got Method Man. It's got Nick Cave. It's got uh, the Flaming Lips. It's all over the place. U two had a song in there, didn't they? U two, yeah. It has a U two has a a song so big it contains universes within it. Wow. All right. So if hearing uh, Seth and me gab about the, the the Batman Forever soundtrack sounds like your kind of thing, look up Rusty Needles Record Club. It should be the most recent episode uh, on the day this comes out. Yeah, and the, the podcast has a cartoon dog on the logo, so you know you're in the right spot. All right. Well, Rob, if you don't have anything else, I think I'm going to jump right in with this message from Virginia. Let's do it. Okay. This is in response to our episodes on the seven-day week. Virginia writes, Greetings. I'm Virginia, and I'm Brazilian. This is my first time writing to you, and I apologize in advance for any grammatical errors in this email. First, I need to say I love this podcast, and I always recommend it to everyone. It's perfect to practice my English listening. It's so very well produced and always very fun to listen. Uh, well, thank you, Virginia. Virginia says, by the end of part one of the seven-day week, you talked about the theory about markets and fresh food. I always have this on my mind because of my language. In Portuguese, the days of the week are separated by work days and rest days. Monday to Friday is, and I think this is in order, segunda-feira, terça-feira, quarta-feira, quinta-feira, and sexta-feira. Feira in Portuguese is often used to describe a fair or an open market. So mm. we have second fair to sixth fair. And then we have the rest days, Sabado and Domingo, or Dias Dominica. And that's, of course, Saturday and Sunday. I think those are the, the same names for the weekend days as they are in Spanish, or very close. Anyway, uh, Virginia says, maybe this will add something? I don't know, but I've been thinking about writing you for a long time. Hope this information will be useful. Lastly, I really love episodes that involve such trivial things that people would never tend to think about them. Can't wait for part two. P.S. I really don't know why we don't have a first fair here. Oh, well, thank you, Virginia. Yeah, that's very interesting. So to restate what she says in the email, 
Monday in Portuguese translates to second market, and then Tuesday is third market, and it goes all the way through until Friday, which is sixth market. So that would imply to me that Sunday is, in fact, first market or first fair, though this would be kind of weird because, of course, you know, uh, Sunday is the Christian holy day going back many centuries, uh, probably including the the whole time of the development of Portuguese. So I, I don't know. I, I wonder what is behind that. And I also wonder about words for days of the week in other languages and if they shed any light on on weird quirks of local cultural history that they emerged from yeah this is this is very fascinating uh i always enjoy it when uh when listeners from the from around the world uh share their own uh, uh you know sort of local and or linguistic take on the topic All right, this next one comes to us from Will. Will says, hi, Robert and Joe. Thanks for the fascinating content. I enjoyed listening to the first episode of Seven Days of the Week. You have underlined that different people are likely to have different mental representations for days of the week. This made me think of my father, who is a recently retired Lutheran minister. For my dad, the weekend was a time of work, as this was when he was prepared to lead and leading the Sunday services, including finalizing and delivering his sermon. Thus Sunday, the traditional day of rest, was for my father a peak day of work, at least until about 1 p.m. when he usually made it back to sit with the family for lunch. Because of this, my father often called Sunday afternoon the, quote, start of his weekend. (laughs) Thanks again for the stimulating material each week. Look forward to part two. From Zurich, Will. Oh, glad to hear from Zurich. So we've heard from both Brazil and Switzerland already. Yeah. Yeah. you know, this is interesting because maybe this explains why the 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 clubs and music halls are not full of uh, of priests and preachers partying on Saturday night. They're buckling down to work for the for the Sunday morning sermon. Yeah, yeah. Or they sh- they better not be partying. You know, they, they, they have they have a big day ahead of them. Though it is a reminder that you know what you're going to have a particular religious calendar in place. Uh, I imagine it's going to vary not only from. Faith to faith, for, but from denomination to denomination, you know, is this a is this a church where Sunday is the big day, or is it a church where oh, well, also Wednesday is really big, or uh, or either, or there's just something going on pretty much every day of the week. Uh, so it, it's always it's always interesting to consider uh, yeah different different models for the week that are tailored to a specific um, um, uh, uh, line of work. Uh, you know, sometimes Monday is the weekend. I would be interested to see a study that ranks all of the Christian denominations by how much prep work on average the the leader of the congregation has to do to get ready. Like, you know, which are the most intensive in terms of sermon writing and which are the most seat of the pants? Yeah. I, I have very fond memories of the uh, Episcopal priest at my my church when I was when I was a kid, uh, putting together, I feel like, really well-written sermons. Like, you know, he, he put some work into them. They had themes and stuff that would mm-hmm. come back and all that. I remember there was one about James Bond, and I don't remember really? what the moral was. Yeah, somehow I think James it tied Bond back into the Gospel of Matthew. But well, you know, you got to connect. You, you, it's it's always a struggle, right? You got to find a way to connect with everybody to to make the message relevant to uh, yeah. today's uh, listeners, and you know, and uh, and so sometimes that means referencing what everybody's excited about, be it a you know James Bond film or uh, you know the Grinch or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> It could be. It was some kind of Bible lesson that tied into. Possibly, it was a, a movie tie-in for the upcoming release of Goldeneye in the 1990s oh, really? with uh, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> but I'm not sure.
Okay, next message is from frequent correspondent Jim in New Jersey. Jim says, Robert and Joe, I keep having a recurring thought about biological reasons for there to be seven days in the week. You've danced around the idea uh, several times in referring to people using the week to mentally organize tasks. Is there any connection between seven days in the week and roughly seven short-term memory chunks in human brains? People in cultures with low literacy would depend more upon memory in organizing and tracking short to medium term tasks. Most people would be able to manage a week's worth of activity in their heads at a time. Add a few more days to the week and you start to lose track. I have no evidence for this, but a quick Google search didn't reveal any uh, resources confirming or contradicting this idea. Jim in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, Jim, I, I would say like the other biological hypotheses that we've mentioned, I mean, I feel like it would be hard to prove this is the origin of the week, but it, it's, uh, it's a, certainly an interesting idea. If you want to look up more about the idea of there being sort of seven chunks of short-term memory, you can check out a classic paper in cognitive psychology. It's called The Magical Number 7 Plus or Minus 2, Some Limits on Our Capacity for Processing Information. Uh, this was published in 1956 in Psychological Review by the uh, famous Harvard psychologist George A. Miller. And if you want to have a, a, a full, well-rounded understanding, you should look up the paper and then all the subsequent research adding to and critiquing it. But the massively abridged and simplified version is that Miller used a number of different tests to argue that the average person can typically hold in working memory about seven chunks of meaningful information at one time. And this general rule shows up in people's attempts to do things like repeat lists of items or manipulate simple pieces of information. Uh, but of course, all the usual caveats, it's more complicated than that in reality. It depends on a number of intrinsic and extrinsic factors and so forth. But uh, I do think that you could be onto something, Jim, because if seven is a good rough approximation of the average number of chunks of information that we can manage in working memory at one time, would that mean seven is just a pretty good number of days to have in a week because that's about as many days in advance as the average person would be able to think about without consulting written records? Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Plus seven is the holy number. James Bond is 007. <laughs> it all comes together. Um, oh, uh, by the way, uh, another shout out to uh, Seth, our producer. Uh, in, in one of these episodes, we were asking the question, well, what are some horror franchises uh, that have seven installments that you could you know, spread out evenly throughout the uh -huh. week? And uh, Seth researched this as he was editing the episode and pointed out that uh, there are three that we can look to as of this recording. There may be some subsequent films that come out uh, yeah. that change this, but uh, he said Paranormal Activity, The Amityville Horror, and Wrong Turn. Wow. So all of those hilarious, wrong, they just keep going in those woods. You'd think after <laughs> the previous six massacres in the West Virginia woods, people would stop taking that wrong turn. There'd be like a sign up by that yeah, point. That, put, a, put a sign up, for God's sake. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen... Um, uh, a single i don't think i've seen any of these movies i haven't seen anything from uh all three of these franchises uh i saw a number of the paranormal activity movies they're all uh, you know they're all demon hauntings there's the demon possession and then you you know like a camera gets set up in a room and and you see weird stuff happening behind a person's back and they're not aware of it mm, yeah 
And, and it, you know, here's another thing. Once they put that sign up, they ought to make more of these and they could just call it right turn. Just, <laughs> just, yeah. It's just about a family going on a normal vacation in West Virginia and, uh, and just skipping the, I'm, I'm assuming, cannibalistic uh, uh, rural dwellers altogether. That would be an interesting movie. It's about a group of backwoods cannibals who are trying to to get people to come down the wrong turn, but nobody ever comes. And we just follow them about their day-to-day lives while they're mm-hmm. s- sitting around waiting. Yeah. All right. We have another one here. Uh, this one comes to us from Aiden. Aiden writes, hi, Robert and Joe. I just listened to part two of the seven-day week series. In the episode, you mentioned the study using BART tests to look at risk aversion and its correlation with mood throughout the week. Uh, Yeah, now a quick refresher on that in case it's been a while since you listened or you didn't listen yet. Uh, The BART test that Aiden is talking about, that's an acronym. It stands for Balloon Analog Risk Task. And basically, it is a simple computer game that is used to measure a person's willingness to take risks. And also, uh, quickly, on the results of that one study we looked at, they, the authors found a pattern where people start fairly risk tolerant on Mondays, and then their risk tolerance goes down each day after that, reaching its lowest point on Thursdays. Thursday's the most cautious day, and then rebounding again on Fridays. Friday looks a little bit more like Monday. Uh, anyway, uh, Aiden continues. You point out that the correlation is consistent through the week. More sad equals less risk averse except for Fridays. On Fridays, we would expect people to be happy and for risk aversion to go down, but instead it goes up. You considered a few different explanations for this, which I must admit were not very compelling. The explanation that immediately came to mind for me is the fact that some poor soul had to spend their Friday night in a lab clicking a space bar for pennies instead of doing something fun and or relaxing after a long week. I would be sad too if I had to uh, barty instead of party on my Friday night. Uh, toothy-faced emoticon. That, that is an illegal pun. <laughs> As a side note, your description of the BART test exactly matched a personality test I had to do once as part of a job application process. There were a series of similarly simple games and scenarios that seemed to assess various personality metrics. I never heard back from the company, so I will never know if I lacked the right experience for the job or if it's simply my personality that got in the way. When I was job hunting at the time, it was always demoralizing to be rejected by a machine. Another online test I had to do automatically emailed me within seconds, telling me I didn't meet their benchmarks. Not sure which of these outcomes is worse. Anyways, thanks for another great episode, Aiden. Oh, Aiden, I I feel for you there. I mean, on... From the employer's perspective, I can understand why they might use personality tests to to help them find the right kind of candidates. But I don't know, from the applicant's perspective, that's just brutal having to, something feels really awful about having to like play the balloon inflation test in order to get a job. Now, you know, we don't know exactly what job they were applying for here. So maybe this wasn't abstract at all. Maybe the job was inflating balloons with monies. And uh, and doing so in a way where the balloon of money does not explode, but also is filled enough that you're not losing losing money on uh, you know all those giant uh, you know balloon rubbers. Were you applying for a job as a professional gambler? I don't know. <laughs> but I agree. I can see where that would be demoralizing to to be uh, rejected by a machine.
All right. Uh, this next message comes from Selena, and it is also about the same study with people uh, uh, being becoming more risk averse from Monday through Thursday, and then risk tolerance rebounding on Friday. Um, uh, Selena says that this pattern of behavior uh, sounds like a pattern called scalloped responding in applied behavior analysis. This patterned behavior is typically produced by a fixed interval schedule of reinforcement, behavior that happens closer in time to access to the reinforcer, e.g. finish the work week slash access the weekend, is more likely to be strengthened than behaviors that happen farther in time from the reinforcer. Uh, once someone gains access to the reinforcer, it produces a post-reinforcement pause in responding. Then, as the person anticipates access to the reinforcer, as it gets closer to the end of the fixed time interval, i.e. the work week, the previously reinforced behaviors start to ramp up again. Another example of fixed interval schedule of reinforcement is studying behavior for weekly tests or monthly exams. Well, that's interesting, Selena. And I guess if I'm understanding you right, I think this would mean that there's a different kind of pattern going on than the uh, than the explanation hypothesized by the researchers there. So under this interpretation, if the pattern of risk tolerance observed in the study is generally sound, it might be explained by proximity to the weekend, you know, with the weekend uh, offering some kind of behavioral reinforcing mechanism that causes us to take risks rather than, you know, improving mood from Monday to Thursday, causing increased aversion to risks. Hmm. So maybe it has nothing to do with mood. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Samantha. Hello, Rob, Joe, and Seth. I wanted to write in about my experience with confusing days of the week with each other. I'm a college student, and my schedule has a typical division into Monday, Wednesday, Friday days, and Tuesday, Thursday days. I tend to have the same set classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then a different set of classes on Tuesday, Thursday. Even within that, I have different labs that happen on different days. None of my weekdays are identical. Ooh, uh, this, uh, this just makes me anxious even reading this because I feel like I still have dreams about this sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So my college classes were organized along the same scheme. I mean, with some exceptions. I had some that were just like one long weekly Wednesday night class or something. Um, yeah. And but, you, didn't uh, you have that mid-morning Tuesday-Thursday class that – oh, you didn't cancel that, did you? You, you, you just stopped going. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you – Rob, did you ever do the thing where – I think I tried this at least one semester – uh, where you tried to get all of your week's classes into the Tuesday, Thursday days. So yes, you basically yeah. have five days off, but Tuesdays and Thursdays are just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I did something along those lines or God, it's, it's been so long, but I remember sort of scheming. I don't know if it, if it worked out. Um, but I, I can't imagine that would have been a good idea to just try and just slam everything under those Tuesdays and Thursdays. I think I basically did that one semester, but it, it, didn't actually work out great because of a uh, because at the time I sort of had a tendency to pr procrastinate mm -hmm. and like you can't procrastinate if you're if you're cramming all of your stuff into being due on basically the same day. Yeah, yeah, I was I was very much the same way. Uh, anyway, uh, Samantha continues. Despite it being very important that I know what day of the week it is, it is not unusual for me to be getting ready in the morning and have no idea what class I will be heading to later. I keep my whole schedule in my phone, however, so I can often check that and know which classes I have that day. I wonder if this has to do with the fact that I have my calendar in my phone. Why bother to remember what day of the week it is when I can check my phone at any given moment and see that I have chemistry at 10 a.m.? 
My classes start at the same time every day, so I suppose that helps blend the days together as well. Thanks for reading. I love your show. You guys keep me company while I crochet and knit. Samantha. Well, thanks, Samantha. Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. Is our perception of time and calendar consciousness affected by ease of access to, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, date-confirming devices? Yeah, I mean, we've certainly looked at similar data about our ability to sort of offload things to other minds and, of course, machines. So it seems entirely plausible. All right, Rob, should we wrap up with one message about Weird House Cinema? This this one is about snooker, so I feel like I, I must defer to you and let you read it. Okay. Yeah, we we, uh, we heard from a, at least a couple of listeners uh, regarding uh, uh, Billy the Kid in the Green Bay's Vampire. Uh, so here we go. This comes to us from Kenny. Hi, Rob and Joe. Growing up in the UK when there were only four channels, you unfortunately had to endure a lot of snooker on TV. Scintillating entertainment for a nine-year-old, it was not. I did, however, absorb the rules pretty well, despite only getting to play once or twice in the intervening years. Every time you pocket a red, you can pocket a colored ball. Since the balls all have different values, the best one to go for, if you can get it, would be the black. While there are still red balls on the table, the other colors are replaced on their starting spots each time they are sunk. Once all the reds are gone, the remaining colors can be sunk, but this must be done in ascending order of value, finishing with the black. This is why the Green Bay's vampire is repeatedly going for the black, and why it's seemingly always being replaced. Also, about the luminous waistcoats, I think (laughs) you call them vests in the USA. The formal attire for a professional match would be spiced up with a bit of color, and I seem to remember that the younger, cooler players could be pretty flamboyant. Finally, I was confused by the green stamps or tickets reference. I am not sure it refers to money as our banknotes aren't green. Only the single was green, and these guys wouldn't think of a one-pound note as being worth singing about. Uh, It was also completely withdrawn from use, at least in England, in 1988. Anyway, I hope uh, this sheds some light on the topic. Kinney. Uh, well, thanks, Kenny. Well, okay, so a, a couple of notes on the things you bring up here. The luminous waistcoats line, if nobody remembers what that was, that was when the Green Bay's vampire is complaining about how uh, about how uh, the, the young people in, in snooker are no longer, you know, fancy, posh, rich people like him. Mm-hmm. They're coming in wearing wearing gaudy clothes and stuff. And, and one of the things he says is luminous waistcoats. I think that comes right before <laughs> he says one of them has green hair. Yes. <laughs> And then the the green stamps thing is the very first song in the movie is called Green Stamps. And we were trying to figure out what it was about. And we honestly couldn't. It seems to be about money. But uh, yeah, Kenny's note is is good here because I, I, do, I don't think the cash at the time was green. Yeah. Based on this, uh, after reading Kenny's email, I, I did a little more research and um, it, uh, it looked a little deeper. And I think think, this is my guess, I think they must be referencing green shield stamps. Um, According to Wikipedia, quote, green shield stamps was a British sales promotion scheme that rewarded shoppers with stamps that could be used to buy gifts from a catalog or from any affiliated retailer. Uh, They apparently were referenced in songs by Genesis and Jethro Tull. So, you know, this would not this this show and this song would not be isolated in referencing green stamps, though um, 
Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I would have to go back and listen to the song a bit more to maybe try and get it, but maybe they're, they're trying to talk about green stamps and, you know, sort of using that to, uh, to, to further flesh out this idea of sort of the, the, the 1980s rat race of trying to get ahead in this uh, London, you know, sub world. Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. I mean, the song really does seem to be about money. Like, that's what you get from all the visuals and all that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, I, I really don't know what to make of this. Uh, the alternate explanation I was thinking of was, okay, if you go with the uh, the post-apocalyptic interpretation uh, where they're living in an underground system of, of, of bunkers and tunnels, maybe it's like, you know, the green stamps are the in-world currency that you have to use to buy oxygen from Cohagen or whatever. There seems to be a song by uh, someone named Alan Sherman called Green Stamps as well. Uh, so uh, I don't know. This is, I mean, this is, I guess, was just a common cultural reference at the time. I guess my only guess is that there's somehow supposed to be a critique of sort of uh, Thatcher era capitalism in England. Uh, but if anyone out there has more information, maybe you're a big, uh, you know, Genesis fan or Jethro Tull head, you can write in and, uh, and let us know more about Green Stamps. No, we do not want to hear from the Tull heads. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All, all fans are welcome. <laughs> all right. We, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here, but we will be back next Monday with more listener mail. So keep them coming. Write in about current episodes, past episodes, potential future episodes. If you have anything to add to listener mail discussions that are ongoing here, uh, then you know, let us have it. Um, our core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Wednesday, we do a short form uh, artifact or monster fact episode. On Fridays, we do Weird Al Cinema. That's our time to discuss a strange film. And on the weekends, we have a rerun, a vault episode. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.